0: This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash
1: party today.
2: Hey there, and welcome to Big Universe. I'm Jim Lefter. I'll be your host for today. I'm a spiritual journeyman and media consultant. Joining me today is my amazing co-host, spiritual rebel Sarah Bowen. Sarah is the author of *Sacred Sendoffs*, an animal chaplain's advice for surviving animal loss, making life meaningful, and healing the planet. Hi, Sarah. How are you today? I'm peachy. Peachy. I like that word, peachy.
0: Yeah, I don't know where that came from, but you know, <laughs> I, just, I just intuited my answer there, and it was peachy.
2: We have Jim Blake from Unity coming on today to talk about leadership, servant leadership and the various aspects of that. I wondered, what what's your experience with people who've been, uh, you know, leaders and, and people who've stand stood out one way or good ways or bad ways in terms of leadership with places you've been?
0: Yeah, you know, by this age, I've had a lot of people I've worked for. <laughs> So, you know, a lot of different jobs, a lot of different places that I've I've volunteered or I've worked for people. And I, you know, I was thinking about this while reading Jim's book. I think it's the, the standout good ones or the ones who 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 feel good to me in, in in my memories are the ones where when I came to him with a problem or I was, you know, having some sort of issue going on at attention, asked me, how can I support you? What do you need?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And the ones that, you know, that you would, you know, my heart would start to race when I saw them call, or I would just kind of not want to go to work or things like that, where the people, when I came with an issue or a problem or something going on would say, what happened?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And just that difference between the, what happened, which kind of makes it feel like, you know, it's your fault, uh, or you got to go back and dredge up the problem, <laughs> you know, and, and relive it while you tell it. hmm Versus people who say, okay, there's something going on. Let's start from today. How can I support you?
2: Right, right. Yeah.
0: So that that makes me think also with the people, you know, because I have people who work for me and with me too. And that's the kind of leader I want to be is how can I support you? Not, oh, dear God, what just happened? Right. How about you?
2: Yeah, definitely support is the main thing for me. I mean, when I worked at Discovery Channel and TLC and all that, um, it, in the beginning, it was a really wonderful place to work because they were very supportive. They let you grow. There was freedom. Um, there was excitement with the mission. And I think all those elements are important. I've worked other places where that isn't the case, where fear and intimidation are were the rule of the day. And, uh, you know, you could tell, I mean, in the in relationships with people all over the organization, and you could tell, in the work itself you know the mission itself what 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 was successful and wasn't successful so I think it's so important that we learn to deal with one another in a in a quality way and that we uh, leadership is such an important part of how we deal with that
0: yeah and it's hard sometimes too because we don't we don't work in organizations in a vacuum so you know we may want to be one way and yet we're receiving pressure to be another way sometimes right right. or there's always the fear of if i if i act in certain ways is my job secure you know when we start to mix um our, our survival and our security and and things like that with, with our fear, you know, it gets to be really, really messy. So I appreciated some of the things, some of the tips in Jim's book. It's not a big book, you know, it's an accessible kind of tip book, uh, that, that raised up a lot of things for me to think about how do I want to be? And also how do I want to react or better yet respond (laughs) to the people that I work for? So there, there's a lot in this in this tiny little uh, t- tome. What is the word tome tomb? What is that? What's that tome, word?
2: tome is it tome? Is that the word? <laughs> tome. I don't know, but that's okay. I love it's when a little we have, book. We have <laughs> It's a little book.
0: It's a little packed packed book. Yes.
2: I'm looking forward to diving in with him. I think that's going to be fun. All right. Do you have a quote for us today?
0: I do. It's a question and an answer in a quote. What is sane leadership? It is the unshakable faith in people's capacity to be generous, creative, and kind. It is the commitment to create the conditions for these capacities to blossom.
2: Oh, I like that. Who's that?
0: Mm, That's another great kind of uh, book in the same vein of what we're talking about today. That is Margaret Wheatley, known also as Meg Wheatley. In her book, Who Do We Choose to Be?
2: I like that. I haven't heard of that book. I'll have to check that out.
0: It's a good one. What'd you come up with today?
2: If you do a good job for others, you heal yourself at the same time, because a dose of joy is a spiritual cure. It transcends all barriers.
0: Mm, I love a good quote about joy. Who is that?
2: It's attributed to Ed Sullivan.
0: Is that right?
2: That's what that's what my read it again.
0: Re- Let me put Ed Sullivan in my head. Read it again.
2: I won't try to do his voice. If you do a good job for others, you heal yourself at the same time because a dose of joy is a spiritual cure. It transcends all barriers. Huh. I like that. Yeah, I thought it was good. All right. Are you ready to get into the interview? Let's do it. Rev. Jim Blake has more than three decades of study and service in New Thought traditions and organizations. He rejoined he rejoined Unity World headquarters in, as CEO in 2016, having previously served as Chief Information Officer and Vice President of Operations from 2006 to 2011. Prior to being named CEO, he served with Global Leader Innovate Global. Le- Prior to being named CEO, he served with global leading innovators in the traffic and energy industries. Jim's first book, The Zen Executive, Gems of Wisdom for Enlightened Leaderships, won a 2022 Silver Living Now Award in the category of personal growth. Welcome to Big Universe, Jim. Great to
1: have you. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure to be here with you.
2: Well, I can't wait to dive into things. Very much enjoyed the book. Thank you. What inspired you to write the Zen Executive? and what exactly does it mean to be a Zen executive?
1: Well, lots of people want to try to link it to, you know the the tradition of Zen Buddhism, and it's not necessarily uh, about that. so we're we're using Zen in this context as a noun, and it's the the place of peace and calm, really. And so the idea is to be able to lead from a place of center and peace and using compassion. Um, and all of those qualities we would look for, um, t- you know, typically found in a spiritual leader. It, I, the book is really trying to combine the idea that you can be both, that you can be uh, successful, a highly successful professional using best business practices, and combine those with uh, what many believe are ancient spiritual principles, and, and be successful. I wrote the book generally because, um, I mean, I have to go back a ways, but Throughout my career, I experienced some really terrible leadership. <laughs> From the yeah, I think point- all of us can relate to that. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, yeah, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> so uh, I really began to notice how it impacted me. And so I learned a lot. I mean, don't get me wrong. There were some great leaders where I learned a lot of, of what the right things are to do. But I also learned a lot about what the wrong things are to do. And I saw the impact on myself and my colleagues. And so I really sort of began a practice of incorporating uh, leadership principles and practices in a different way, doing it differently. So treating people with compassion, um, really getting to know and develop relationships, being a little more free um, in terms of moving away from command and control leadership and fear and intimidation. Um, I wanted to. So over the course of time, I learned that these practices were successful. And so the purpose of the book was to say, here is my real world experience with these things, and here are the results. And there is a different way. And the reason it's so powerful and meaningful is it not only enhances your, your ability to lead, but productivity and those things, but you change people's lives. You change your own and you change people's lives. And so the, uh, I would say the keystone moment for me or the critical moment for me was I had a particularly difficult boss uh, a few years back and it was a weekend. It was on a Sunday, Sunday afternoon, actually. And I was reading a book quietly at home, um, relaxing Sunday afternoon, and the phone rang. And I looked over at the phone, and I saw his name. And when I saw his name, my heart sunk, my shoulders raised. I had a physical reaction Mm. to his phone call.
2: Yeah, yeah. And it was
1: a moment that I thought, wow, is this what I want to do with my life? Do Mm. I want to be pens and needles every time I receive a call from this guy or have to interact with this guy, what is that doing to me physically over the long term, right? Repeated instances of me having a physical reaction to, to a phone call or interaction with this person. And that was sort of the turning point for me to say, first of all, I can't work in this kind of environment. It's not healthy for me. And so I, as I began to really reflect on it, what I began to realize was my stress level at work didn't stay at work. I brought that home, I, 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 it may have led to, um, you know, not full on road rage incidences, but, you know, me being stressed out on the drive home because someone caught me, caught me, uh, you know, cut me off. Um, so based on the fact that I was already at high stress level, that determined my reactions in other environments, including at home with my family and my friends and so forth. And once I began to connect those dots, it became clear to me that, wow, I, as a leader, have the same impact on the people that serve on my team. And I don't don't want to have that kind of impact. So how do I lead in a way that creates the opposite of that, that helps people feel loved and supported, um, that lifts people up, that uh, helps them to feel seen and heard and appreciated? Because if you connect those dots, then what you begin to realize is, if I'm creating that environment for my people, then when they leave the office, they're still happy and fulfilled and content. And they're carrying that out into the world instead of this uh highly stressful reaction to the things that come up. I hope that makes sense.
2: Absolutely.
1: Makes a makes a lot of sense.
2: And you talk, we're gonna go into a little bit later. We'll talk about the, the concept of servant leadership, which I think is so important uh in into what you're speaking to here. Um, because obviously what affects us and and how we deal with things is how our people that we work with um are affected by it so the uh, you you set the book up in a very really good way in that uh you dive into the four sections you you start with the the basic block of the inner self you go on to mission and then leadership and then dealing with change and crisis which are all quite important but before we get into that i wondered if you could tell me a little bit about unity as an organization and for those that don't know and um what's it like running unity Uh, what inspires you about unity as an organization
1: sure so unity is uh here at unity village where i'm at it's the world headquarters for what's called the unity movement it's a 130 plus year old spiritual tradition if you will or path it sits under the umbrella of what's called the new thought tradition and so there are many um different traditions in New Thought. There's Agape that's that was founded and run by Reverend Michael Beckwith. There's Centers for Spiritual Living. There's, of course, Unity. There's the Universal Foundation for Better Living. And uh, they sit under this umbrella called New Thought. And they basically interpret, uh, they bring together, I, I would say, some of the most oldest ancient traditions um, and give them to you as practical ways to then approach and live your life and so with unity it began in the late 1800s and it really it exploded basically they started uh, small groups started meeting all over the country uh, this philosophy really caught fire they started writing books and magazines pretty soon it grew into this really prolific publishing um, organization to this day, we publish a daily devotional called Daily Word, which has about a half a million subscribers. There's a publication called Unity Magazine, lots of books. The whole operation around Unity World Headquarters is about providing tools and resources to help you on your spiritual journey, practical tools and resources. So the things we're producing today are books and articles and podcasts and magazines that are centered on helping you deal and cope with the everyday struggle. So... Uh, Things like grief, things like prosperity, things like healing. If you go to our website, it is completely structured in that way, where you find topics and resources on all of those those categories. And that's really our goal, is how do we provide spiritual tools and resources in every format you can think of to help people cope with today's challenges? The philosophy itself, uh, when it was founded, was founded here in the West, and so it was couched in Christianity. So you'll find a lot of reference to, to, to Christian scripture and how these teachings apply there. But the founders believed that they took some of the best teachings from the world religions, brought them together under this umbrella, which is why they called it unity. And so uh, there's a lot based in mind science. Uh, so if you're familiar with the Buddhist philosophy about you know, the suffering that, that, um, that happens with us individually, you know, not the, not the uh, tragic suffering, but suffering in general is created by our own mental posture, right? So it's our thoughts and feelings and how we manage those, how we can change those in a way that helps us respond to the outer world instead of react to the outer world. And you, you find a lot of people that are teaching this these days, Eckhart Tolle being one, um, Michael Singer being the other, so the, the philosophy sort of starts there and then goes into more advanced levels, adding in the practices of, of meditation uh, and prayer and sort of understanding the nature of God. So that's what Unity is about. Um, what it's like to run this organization is, is, is it's a $25 million spiritual nonprofit. And, and so part of the beauty is uh, I get to apply best business practices with all of the complexities associated with with operating a 1200 acre campus that publishes and makes all these tools and resources, does retreats and events. And I'm in an environment where it is okay to express your spiritually authentic self. And so, you know, things that would happen here where we open a meeting in prayer or close a meeting in meditation, that may not be as common in the corporate world. It's widely accepted here. And, and so it makes it a really, really special place. Uh, to work because you get the challenge of of both aspects, your own spiritual and personal growth, as well as complexities of running uh, a big business. If that makes sense.
2: Absolutely, yeah. And the campus is beautiful. I've been there several times. I think you've been there too, Sarah, haven't you?
0: Yeah, I led a retreat there this fall, so I got to see some of the uh, ins and outs, and actually work directly with some of the uh, event planning staff, and just some really wonderful, wonderful people over there. Thank you.
2: So as right. a ba- as a basis, you know, obviously as leaders, we need to have an inner self. We need to deal with our inner selves, and uh, you know, uh, to to build onto the the sense of leadership. Um, you talk about intuition, and you were talking a little bit about a, a few minutes ago how you know um, spirituality plays a, a part in things. In the book, um, what do you mean by intuition? And what, how do you make room for intuition when you're dealing with a large, large organization?
1: Sure. So um, let me start by saying when I began this journey, I thought intuition was something reserved for those who were gifted. So mediums and psychics and sages and gurus, if you will. Over time, through my study um, of various world religions and and even uh, the Unity teachings, what I want to to really emphasize is that every single one of us have a unique form of intuition. So we have the ability to access sort of the universal intelligence or divine wisdom that exists in this planet. And so when people say, "What is that?" Well, so when you you look at everything that has been created in the world, and then you look at uh, the animation behind it the flowers knowing when to to bloom, the coincidences of the trees producing oxygen, we need oxygen, we produce carbon dioxide, which then the trees need. And so there's all this interplay and synergy that implies that there is a universal intelligence behind all of these things. And so in that intelligence, um, we have the ability to sort of access this divine wisdom and guide us in our decision-making. Every single person does. Um, the quickest way to be able to develop your intuition is to find a way to get to a place of stillness. So what does that mean? All we're really trying to do is quiet the mind. So a lot of people go, I want to meditate, or other people say, I can't meditate. I can't sit still for 30 minutes. My mind won't be quiet. The idea is not to stop the mind. It's just to slow it down and to quiet. You're always going to have thoughts. The, The ability to sort of let them go by Um, as a cloud moving across the sky is what you're trying to get to. Meditation may not be the way you do that. You may do it through gardening or playing music or art or a walk out in nature. The whole point of getting to this place of stillness and and quieting the mind is to make room for inspiration, which comes from within. If you're constantly going down the rabbit hole of your thoughts, um, then you're never able to sort of lean away from that process and create room for inspiration and guidance to come through. Um, I'm hoping that makes sense so far.
2: Sure. Now, now regarding intuition as, as when you're running the organization, how does that play a part in things?
1: Sure. So um, it's very, uh, I, we don't make a lot of decisions. I say we, so I'll start with me. I basically take every decision, uh, major or minor into that place. I get to that place where I can sort of have a, and for me, it's a feeling. So some people receive intuition as a visual. Some people hear a clear voice telling them exactly what they need to hear. Um, There are many different ways people receive and interpret their intuition. For me, it's a very strong gut feeling of what I want to say or do from an action perspective. And so over time with my daily meditation practice and, and my really concentrated effort to develop and trust. The key is to trust your intuition. Lots of us have it, we get the intuitive hits, but we, for whatever reason, are afraid to trust it. And so we don't often, you know, I, I surely I can't have that kind of intuition. Surely that guidance can't be, be right. And so, but once you get to a place where you're able to trust it, for me, I just apply it to every decision-making process. You'll laugh at me, but if I go to the store and there are four brands of some product I'm trying to buy, and I'm not sure which one, I can take a split second and sort of connect within and say, okay, and just be guided and pick that one and move on. It's become sort of uh, that ingrained in how I live my life.
0: So I have a question, Jim, mm-hmm. <laughs> that has arisen. Um, I, I do work in in corporate spaces, in religious spaces, spiritual spaces, nonprofits. You know, kind of this this um, jumping back and forth. A lot between between different places and and so having to translate language in my mind sometimes when i do that and, and one of the things i realized when hearing you just now speak about intuition and, and reading in the book is that sometimes i feel like this idea of intuition and innovation get confused where where the idea is that the the in. The intuition or the innovation or whatever that is we're listening for needs to somehow be linked to to sales, to growth, to, you know, that kind of thing. Can you and, and you have a great focus in this book on the, you know, kind of the self-care aspect of what we're talking about and that kind of thing. But do you have you observed that? The idea that the intuition isn't the intuition for our own well being, but the intuition for where should the business go?
1: Indeed. Um and it can, and to your point, it's actually both. The other thing I want to step back and say is that is not entirely how, how we, we lead, um, meaning we also use facts and data. So I'm an IT guy. I'm a 30 year <laughs> IT guy. So I'm a huge proponent and believer of data. The idea is to take that data and then also apply your intuition, and then you'll get to an even clearer path. Um, so it's not one or the other. It's really kind of both. But to your point, intuition is not some big earth-shattering new idea all the time. Um, And it it doesn't have to be some new form of innovation. What's often lost on people, even from an innovative perspective, is that a simple process change in the organization can radically reduce expenses, increase performance, increase efficiencies. And so I think uh, it becomes a misnomer uh, and sort of um, misunderstood, to, to your point that I really only need to go to meditation when I have these great big decisions or I'm looking for a great big idea. Um, it, it really is, it's really much more of a way of life and you can apply it to any level of, of decision-making. And it's not always uh, some big innovative new idea. In some cases, it comes in the form of being guided to talk to this person or go to this meeting or which <laughs>
0: Or not to send the email that's in my <laughs> head. That I want to send. Right,
1: right. <laughs> Sometimes intuition is restraint. (laughs) And what what I think is lost on people, people who who, uh, really begin to start to practice this, here's the things you'll notice. Not only do you start to get some intuitive hits and you're not going to go into meditation every day and come out with, I had all these intuitive hits and ideas every single day. Some days you're just going to be in the stillness. But what you're going to start to notice in your life is all of a sudden coincidences start to become more prevalent. You start ending up in the right place at the right time, meeting with the right people, um, making decisions that have a much greater impact than you ever anticipated. Um, And so it's sort of like you're aligning with the universal flow of intelligence and what's unfolding. That's what getting into the stillness and listening to your intuition does. It's just exactly like you said. Sometimes it's not sending an email or it's making a phone call or it's responding to an email. Um, but it, it really creates this, this sort of magical, I hate to use the word magical spiritual people hate that but it really kind of feels like that you're in the flow and really everything just aligns, and you're in the right place at the right time and the right things seem to occur pretty seamlessly.
0: I love that because it's you're accessing a deeper wisdom that sometimes if you're just eyes down in the Excel spreadsheet. You you can't get to because there's just no space for it to arise. So I, I appreciate that that clarification. If I go, the other oh, oh go sorry. ahead.
1: No, no, please, please.
0: No, I think you've got an intuition for a great thought to share yeah. with us right there, Jim. Go
1: for it. <laughs> I know you guys have explored a lot of the science and stuff as well. And so if I take it to science, because I know some people think some of this is woo woo, but if you go to the quantum level where we're all connected, right, and so all of our thoughts and actions and things interrelate. In terms of the collective consciousness, when you become how these that's this is how these coincidences and these things play out. When you begin to align with that underlying divine intelligence and the uh, unfolding of the universe, as it were, now you're connects you know, consciously or subconsciously through the quantum layer. That's how you're you're making these connections and how they then begin to manifest into the real world. Just I just thought I'd throw that in there. It's good to just throw a things little in, concept. just a little, just a little, just a little concept. idea there.
2: <laughs> so let's go back to the idea of the inner self and, and you know, coming from, from within. And uh, I know you talk about self-care, which is all extremely important. You talk about doing your inner work. I'm curious, you know, about taming your inner critic what do you do to tame your inner inner critic and what do you suggest? Because we all have that voice. I think uh, talking with Julia Cameron recently, she calls hers Nigel. Um, We all, we all have that voice and, you know, I'm sure as a CEO, that's a pretty loud voice at times. Um, What do you do to tame that inner critic?
1: Yeah. uh, Michael Singer calls it the noisy roommate. um, So yes. I will tell you, I wish I could tell you, here's an easy button thing that you can do and everything is wonderful, but it really is unwinding a lot of your conditioning and biases that have been brought forth either through events and experiences in your life or the environment you were raised in. And so you really, really have to sort of pause. The first thing I would say is you have to begin with the concept of worthiness and self worth. Um, I'll give you an example. When I first got invited to apply for this role, the inner critic started right up. And it's like, why would you take this role? This is a 125 year old spiritual organization. There hasn't been a lot of innovation. There's been three or four CEOs before you that have, have struggled to to sort of turn the ship. What in the world makes you think you can do it right? I mean, that was the, that was the first inner critic thing sort of overwhelming me to, to uh, fear you know, not, not to apply my own worthiness. And so that work, really, you have to begin there. You have to really work on, um, you know, using tools and resources and self-help books and podcasts and anything you can get your hands on to begin to clean up your own internal thoughts and feelings about yourself and your self-worth. And once you can really get to a place where you're beginning to love and appreciate yourself, that helps quiet the inner critic, you're still going to notice it show up. And so then that's where you start to employ tools and resources like affirmations. So for instance, today I have a really quick affirmation. When something shows up in the form of doubt or fear or the inner critic, my quick response is, I see that thought and that kind of thinking no longer serves me and I release it. And then I immediately start to pivot it. You know, what's, Instead of thinking of the worst possible outcome, what's the best possible outcome? That's that's mm. a simple change that we all can encounter every day. We all go to this sort of what's the worst possible outcome, and that's bringing forth fear. My challenge to you is to sort of be able to pause and observe that thought, and and pivot it. What if what if the best possible outcome happens here? And so it, it really is, Jim. Just practice. It's a that's why they call it a spiritual practice. Um, You literally have to tame it. And to do it, you have to be consciously observing your thoughts and then working to pivot them. Um, And here's what I will tell you. People will say, oh, that's just positive thinking. And it doesn't. Let me give you an example of why this is so important. If you think that you have the worst luck in the world, that's your conclusion that you've drawn and you go through your life. Here's what happens. People don't understand. If that's my back end thought that just sort of sits there in the on the back burner, constantly running, I actually make decisions and choose paths based on the fact that that is my my constant belief. Am I making sense here? It actually influences the choices I make and the things I do. In fact, I won't do things because I carry that thought. So now I want you to reverse it. I'm the luckiest guy in the world. My life flows with ease and grace. When that becomes sort of your primary thought, then you begin to make decisions and do things because that's your driving thought. So now you're you're not afraid to do this or not afraid to step into that because you have this consciousness of my life flows with ease and grace and there's not a lot of fear there. So um, it really is sort of about understanding how the mind works. First of all, everyone needs to understand this. I didn't know this. I thought I was the only person in the world. I'm glad you said it when you started the conversation. Every single one of us has this terrible voice inside our head. The most successful, beautiful, wonderful people you've ever met that you put up on a pedestal, they have the same inner critic and struggle with the same things we do every single day, confidence and and criticism and so forth. And so um, there is really no easy button. It really is about a practice, consciously observing how your uh, thoughts are showing up and how can you change them so that you then change how you show up in the world.
0: I love how an office supply company has made oodles on that easy button though.
1: Yeah. Right. Right.
0: (laughs) I got, I got one. I kept hitting it. Nothing was happening. So Jim, I, (laughs) I love your, except I gave him 25 bucks. So Jim, I appreciate your, your, um, advice on that. The second gem of wisdom in the Zen executive is mission. So can you talk, I, who who listening has sat in oodles of meetings in boardrooms or in a, at a kitchen table trying to write a mission? I think probably many of us have or been involved in that. Can you talk about you know how do you think we should identify a mission? How do we find it for ourselves? How do we find it for an organization? What is a a useful and effective way to go about doing that?
1: Sure. So how this came about for me is I worked for a, a traffic organization. So they actually created software to create a better flow of traffic. So traffic lights and things of that nature. That's a a niche that hasn't been innovated in for 50 or a hundred years. But their mission statement was very short and sweet. And it was about um, getting people safely to their destination, short, hmm. simple. Um, and it was the whole idea behind their technology. And what I observed was, This was a mix of of generations of people working in this organization, but that mission statement really drove them. They were working in a for-profit company, but they were so attached to this idea of getting people safely to their destinations. I would say over 85% of the employees in that company knew the mission statement, and that was a touchstone moment for me. It was so powerful that everyone knew it, and it was so powerful that it sort of drove the decision-making of the organization that that right there was where I sort of began to realize the power of a, of a meaningful mission statement that everyone could connect to. You had this collective consciousness around it. And so um, that really drove me to write that chapter where there, there are three sort of major elements. So first of all, your mission statement has to come from everyone or the ground up. It has to be something everyone feels, can connect to and buys into. So for that reason, anytime I'm developing a mission statement, I'm involving as many people from the organization as I can so that there's a natural connection to it. The section, the second thing is to make it short. It's got to be short and memorable and meaningful. How many of you have started at new organizations. You see the mission and vision statement on the first day. It's six and a half miles long. You never reference it you again. You never
2: remember it, right? Because you,
1: you can't, too, there's
0: too many pieces. It's too, many, just too complex, too
1: many yeah. Yeah. So here, we. Uh, I did this exercise here and the mission that was developed was to help and serve more people through prayer, publishing, and community, which is basically the three core, core competencies. Everyone doesn't always remember those three core competencies, but almost every person in the organization connects at a heart level with to help and serve more people and and whatever that looks like internally externally and what i will tell you is we use it to drive major decisions so if we're considering a big partnership or we're considering a new capital project we stop as an executive team and say hey how does this serve the mission does it help us to help and serve more people and if it does great if it doesn't then maybe we should reconsider the project but what happens is and now if you were to walk around this campus you'll see that it informs a lot of the decisions that are made by all the different levels, and uh, people really connect to it. And it sort of becomes a noble pursuit for them. It becomes a way for them to feel like they're contributing to the world. And as I think we all know by now, the more people you have holding the same thought or the same consciousness, the more momentum that creates. Now you're all moving in the same direction. And you're all inspired by something greater than you, which is what you want your mission statement to be. I, I I often caution that the mission statement is not aspirational. You don't want it to be something you want to be, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, to be the best book uh, publisher in the world. Well, how do you measure that? And how does that, how does that connect with uh, the people that you're doing? And, and how do you know when you're the best and what determines the best, right? So You really want to bring it down and make it more grounded and practical um, in terms of what every individual does day to day in your organization how can a can your mission statement help inspire them can they connect to it if they can and if you develop it in that way you're going to have uh, a collective momentum that really drives the organization at every level
2: does that help yeah definitely Definitely. When you talk about a calling in the book, what's what's the difference between a mission statement and a calling? I mean, what's a what's a calling, and is that on a personal level, or is it on a also on a on an organizational level?
1: Um, I would say the calling is probably more on an individual level. Um, I don't know that organizations have a call, but I do think as we've been talking about, organizations have. Um, can connect with, as I mentioned, that thing that is greater than they are, the greater than all of us that you can sort of align behind. And and when we talk about a calling, um, I think so many of us move through life and ignore um, that sort of inner tug to go do this or go do that. Or so when you hear someone say, so for instance, I would say, um, I was called to be in this position, largely because of the way the whole circumstance unfolded for me. And that's a really long story for another time. Um, but I can tell you, I feel like I'm supposed to be here. And and the way things have aligned and the people that have shown up um, have made it, have, have sort of served as affirmations for me that this is where I'm supposed to be and, and what I'm supposed to be doing. And the more that you get an alignment with whatever your heart is calling you to do, the more you'll see those kinds of affirmations um, in the outer, as well as coincidences and things. Um, So I I believe the calling is really more uh, in alignment with us as individuals and not necessarily an organization.
0: Would it be fair to say that the calling is, is linked to that intuition, that piece that comes from deep within you, and then the mission is how you articulate it when a bunch of callings get together? 100%.
1: 100%.
2: I like that, Sarah. That sounded that's <laughs> awesome. You should maybe write a book or something.
0: I have or... to, I have to say that. So reading, I'm reading Jim's book this week, and I'm also really knee deep into binge watching a show called The Expanse. That's all about people who go missing on a plane and then they come back and they're experiencing callings. And it's, you know, I'm four I'm four seasons into this thing. So I keep hearing the word calling, 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 calling. So I've really been, you know, as someone who's clergy thinking about how, how do we speak about this thing called calling? So, yeah, I think it's got to be linked to that kind of intuition, whether it's deep inside or it's coming from a, a higher power or a different force
1: outside. Yeah, 100% agree.
2: Let's dive into leadership styles. Um, you talk about servant leadership. I wonder what are the elements of a servant leadership versus other kinds of, you know, we've talked, we talked earlier about not so great forms of leadership, which intimidation and, and, uh, you know, kind of a forced leadership versus servant leadership. What is servant leadership?
1: Okay. Uh, let me jump into that. But before I do, let me just, one of the things that I really, really want to emphasize and that I emphasize in the book around leadership style is this is where I think organizations have the opportunity to make the greatest impact and often make the greatest mistake when they're trying Mm. to create a world-class culture. And that is this. They don't develop a consistent leadership style and and expect everyone to adhere to it across the organization. Mm. Here's why that's important. I'll talk about what servant leadership is here in just a moment, but let's just say I'm a servant leader. Now let's say Jim is a servant leader. And so we're in this big company And his team is happy and productive and they love Jim and they love his leadership style and they feel seen and heard and all that. And on the other hand, on the other side of the organization, I lead with fear and intimidation. So I'm constantly, um, you know, really putting forth reinforcement based on fear and, and, and trying to drive performance based on fear and retribution. If you don't do this, you're going to get fired. If you don't do this, you're going to get a bad review. Meanwhile, the human resources department and, and all the leaders have put all these beautiful things in place. They've got great benefits, they've got napping pods and cots out in the courtyard and Ooh, oh I like ma- I'm nap- in, Jim, we both let's go. we both sparked the napping pods. <laughs> <pause>. Napping <laughs> pods, let's go. They do, they do Friday socials and they have these great opportunities to connect and they're really working hard to create this beautiful culture that's supportive. And so they're feeling like they're super successful and then they do an employee survey and here's what comes back. Jim's team loves the company, loves the culture. There's nothing but rave reviews over there. My team hates their environment, struggles, feels stressed out. And so then you're sitting there going, how are these two different groups of people having a completely different experience of this very same culture and all the programs we put in place? And it's all due to the individual leader and the leadership style. And so if you don't have consistency, then you open your, yourself up to people having a completely different experience inside your organization based on who's leading and their style. So um, that's the the big gem I want to, to take away. G-E-M, of course, that I want to have you take away as
0: opposed to our big J I M here.
1: Yep. Yeah. So servant leader <laughs> is it's not it's this has been out there for a while. Uh, Alan Greenleaf is one of the founders of the the Servant Leadership Institute, and and there's lots of books on it. Um, it's basically reversing the old command and control in the old pyramid. So if you look at the the old pyramid, keep in mind leadership has been based on the military hierarchy for centuries, and and so companies have implemented that. So the most important people in the organization are the the C levels and the and the managers and directors. And servant leadership reverses that and says, really, the most important people in the organization are those that are working directly with your constituents or directly with your your products, and as leaders, our goal is to do some of the very things we've been talking about. Make sure they have the tools and resources to do their job effectively. Remove any roadblocks they may encounter. Provide them an environment where they can be productive, where they feel safe and feel heard. And so lots of people say, well, that just sounds like a lot of relationship building. It really is, but it's also making sure that everyone in your organization, as I mentioned, has the things they need to be successful, And you're really creating an environment for authenticity, for personal and professional development. And so the whole leadership thing really becomes about what can I do to make everyone on my team more productive? What are the things I can do? And honestly, it's everything from recognition to just going around and visiting with people. We have something here we call Walk About Wednesday, started by our founders. Every Wednesday, our executives walk around to different areas of the organization and just check on everybody. How are you doing? How's the family? How are things going? How are you feeling about our direction? And um, it's really created a great connection between our leadership team and our associates. And so that's really what the servant leadership philosophy is and, and uh, what it's about. Our leadership team, in order to ensure consistency, we have what we call a book club. So if you're hired as a leader here, you have to go through an eight-week book club on the book called The Servant. It's an it's a story. About uh, a manager who's really struggling, who goes to a monastery on retreat. Just so happens the the monk there is one of the the greatest corporate leaders in the in the history of the country, and he's re- resolved to teach, teaching these principles in this this monastery. And so, but it really brings forth the core of what servant leadership is, and what are the practical tools and techniques you use. That ensures that all of our leaders have been through that and understand what it means to be a servant leader. To be honest, Jim. We have a zero tolerance policy. If you are not leading as a servant leader, you can't be here because of what I talked about earlier. It damages the culture. The culture is not consistent then because this group's having a different experience of, of leadership which erodes what we built together.
2: And with this leadership, you you established a culture of trust as you've been alluding to here and I'm you know, you had a really effective campaign internally that you talk about in the book called the Uh, slash tag my my why hashtag (laughs) I can I can speak this hashtag my why can you tell us about that internal campaign
1: yeah sure that uh, that's a uh, something that was brought forth by the the wonderful author Simon Sinek who acts asks us to he's got some great stuff out there by the way who asks us to explore sort of what is driving us to do what we do both individually and organizationally and when uh, I first came on the scene with this leadership team we noticed that, generally speaking, um, they, didn't ha- they hadn't had a CEO for about a year and a half. And so there was no cohesiveness and people were really focusing on everything that was wrong instead of any of the things that were right. And, and many people had come here though for the reasons we talked about, the noble pursuit of contributing to the world. And so uh, exploring your why in, time, in terms of why you work at a place really sort of reset everyone's compass to remember why they came and what's really important to them in terms of of being here. And it took the focus off all the things that were wrong and really kind of reset everyone's barometer in terms of, oh yeah, this is why I'm really here. It's it's this letter I got from someone where we made a big difference in their life. Um, It's our prayer ministry that impacts so many people. And uh, that was sort of the beginning of healing the culture, was to to sort of reset everyone's perspective. And then we ask them to just keep that. We ask them to write it out on a small card, these branded graphical cards we have, and stick it on your desk. And so it just sits there now. And, and when you get into you know something that's monotonous or you're having a particularly trying day, <laughs> we invite you to sort of use that as your touchstone to go, mm-hmm. oh yeah, this is why I'm here. This is what's important. And uh, so it becomes a constant to help reset consciousness when needed.
0: I love that. Mm -hmm. I'm worried I'm going to have like 20 my whys all over my mirror, but I suppose that's not a bad thing, right? If you have more than one, can you have more than one my why?
1: Of course. course. That's good.
0: (laughs) That's good news. (laughs) So I would, I'd like to ask a sticky question uh, for many of us, uh, which can we talk about money for a second and how money comes into this? So there is often when we are involved in Servant leadership, or when we're involved in nonprofits, or we're doing work as, as clergy or spiritually led or heart centered, some uncomfortability people may have with is it okay to make money? Can you t- talk about you know your your thoughts about that? You've been in you know you've been in for profit businesses, you've been in um, not for profit businesses. Can what, what's your view on this, Jim?
1: Yeah, so uh, I will say it's absolutely okay to make money. Um, we weren't meant meant as a species to struggle. The the lilies in the field don't struggle, the bloom, the birds don't struggle. So there's a there's sort of a if you look out in nature, you can see an example of um, I'm gonna say abundance, a natural abundance that's there. And so how do we find it? How do we get to it? How do we um get from a place of struggle and strife? Because believe me, there there have been times where I've there was a time in my life where I couldn't get a job for 18 months and and had to sort of really work on that consciously. But um, what I want everyone to hear is certainly, especially in the areas you talked about as churches, as clergy, as nonprofits, there is absolutely nothing wrong with making money. It's money is just the energy of exchange. Where money has gotten a bad rap is the result of greed, um, the result of corruption, but money is what every, if you want to continue to be a clergy or a nonprofit, you have to have money. you got to pay your mortgage, folks. <laughs> the money. Is,
2: <laughs> the, yeah, the organization has to keep going.
1: Yeah, but yeah. The money, the money is what fuels the mission. And so you yeah. have to separate this idea that, that money is bad. Money is not bad. It's how people have corrupted it or the use of it. And so everyone needs money to be successful. If you want to continue your mission, you must have this money. And so- It's absolutely okay. Here's what I would say. What you don't want to have happen is that become your primary pursuit. I am doing this to make money. Um, I would say that is really difficult, especially in terms of nonprofit. And it takes away from the heart of what you do. The founders here had a really great saying. What they said was, if you focus on the work, the money and the measurements and the success will take care of itself. And so certainly we pay attention to money and we measure those metrics and you know, how are sales of this doing or how are subscriptions doing, but that's not what drives us. What drives us is how do we connect with more people? How do we introduce more people to these life-changing teachings and tools and resources? And when you do that, the money sort of, sort of takes care of itself, but you also have to open yourself up to, I can be prosperous and it's okay. This company can be prosperous and it's okay. This nonprofit can be prosperous And it's okay. There's nothing wrong with it. There is, I will tell you, a conditioned belief in our society that to be spiritual, you must be poor. Totally incorrect. I don't want to go to the extremes of the prosperity gospel, where you're going around saying, God wants me to be rich, which is why I have these fancy cars and big houses. That It's sort of perverted what I would call the universal prosperity teachings, which are rooted in sort of the, the law of giving and receiving, right? We all reap what we sow. That's in everything. We reap what we sow. If We think bad thoughts. We're probably going to reap whatever we created with those thoughts. If we give generously, both in time, talent, and treasure, we will reap those seeds of giving later. There is a, a universal and natural flow in terms of the law of giving and receiving. And so what does that mean? What does that apply? It means when you start to become successful and you do generate prosperity, remember to continue to give and support and be generous, um, so that you can open up that flow of prosperity of the organization. I won't. I'm not going to try to go through the prosperity teaching itself, but that's the general um, sort of foundational belief part. I want. I, I would invite people to really step away, and uh, from this idea of that it's that it's just wrong or it's it's not okay to make money. And it's not okay to have ideas and do things to make money. If you go look at any large nonprofits, go look at the books of some of the largest nonprofits. Eight times out of 10, they'll have something on the side that's unrelated to their mission, but generates revenue to fund their mission. They'll own a car wash. They own a storage facility. They have a small business or a cafe. They have something on the side that helps generate cash flow and revenue so that they can continue to do Their mission work. Many, you'll see many food pantries that have um, places where you can buy and sell clothes and and used goods. Um, So it's not an uncommon practice. We all need it to thrive and be successful. So if you can change your mindset and be open to the idea that being prosperous is good for you and for your organization so that your mission can continue uh, in perpetuity.
0: That is really helpful, Jim. I think there's a and there's a flip side of this of having those of us who are receiving services or are who are benefiting from people who are doing this type of work to understand um, that not everything is free either. So, you know, the flip side of it's it's okay to receive money in these things, but also it's okay to support others through that sacred economy because sometimes one of the things I come up against is, well, this is spiritual work, therefore it should be free, and that's which, as know, an that,
2: organization, that, is really difficult. I imagine
0: it's very, very hard because you know if you end up with you know there's this there's this place between charity and volunteering and and, and nonprofit and there's this this place that's often um, a little slippery, a little slippery. So I, I appreciate the thoughts that you have on this um, have on this, Jim. I think the last gem. What's the last gem, Jim? Oh, what's the last gem, gem? (laughs) Jim?
2: Change in crisis, change in crisis. You know, you talk about making change your friend. Talk about that a little bit, will you, Jim?
1: Yeah, um, you know, one of the biggest, and this goes back to some of the things we talked about earlier, and I'll start individually and then we'll go organizationally. But individually, one of the things that we all struggle with is the idea of change. We have expectations, we create um, our desires. And when something changes, we become disappointed. And so the the thing that uh, it took me a long time to learn, again, I look to the universe. Everything in life changes. Everything in the universe changes. If it's not changing or evolving, it's likely dying or decaying. <laughs> and so um, we sort of have to make friends with the idea that there are, life, life is filled with change. And the more I can sort of accept the idea that there's going to be change, the less mental suffering I'll create within myself. And and, um, so I, I talk about the idea of acceptance. And acceptance doesn't mean I become a doormat and just accept everything that shows up, but it does mean that I accept what's before me and then determine how I'm going to respond. If I just continue to resist it, all I'm doing is complaining and suffering, and complaining and suffering. By the way, the change has still occurred and it's not going to go back. And I'm the one who's continuing to suffer. I hope that makes sense. And so um, first acknowledge and, and become okay with everything in life changes. And so now when you take that to an organizational level, um, you sort of, the idea is to create what's you know, loosely referred to as change management and just let everybody know. So oftentimes when I start a new, a new job with a new team, That is the very first thing I talk about is we're going to make a lot of changes. And I talk about just what I talked about, that everything in life changes and we don't always have to be happy with it, but we sort of have to accept that the nature of the world is changed. And if we can make peace with that, we don't always have to agree, but we just know it's going to happen. And what happens is when you do that is you sort of drop this barrier or wall wall that people have that everything's going to stay static. And you sort of reset their expectations. So you've now told them there's going to be a lot of changes. So when all the changes show up, they're not surprised. They don't have near as much resistance. Um, and it makes things a little bit easier to navigate. Uh, I've used that affirmation with teams in both corporate and nonprofit. Let the, That change is our friend. And it, it often gets to a place where, you know, later after a year or so of using it, um, I'll, I'll come in and talk about the next big change. And I'll say, remember, you know, what's our... What's our mantra here? And they'll be like, "Change is our friend." After <laughs> hearing it, and they're you know they sort of become accustomed to the idea that change is going to occur. So it really goes a long way to softening not only the resistance but allowing people to know that there's an expectation that change is going to occur. It goes, it goes a long way to to smoothing out transitions when you're able to do that.
2: And along those lines, um, I know we're running out of time here, but I just want to talk a little bit briefly about failure and failing and how it can be a friend just like change is a friend can you talk a little bit about that because i'm sorry go ahead no go ahead
1: yeah so um you know this was helped along for me what i talk about in the book was helped along for me and probably i'm going to say from 2000 to 2010 you saw this come out of silicon valley and it's the idea that failure is okay Um, And in fact, failure is a a crucial part of innovation. And so you started to see all these buzz, these industry terms and buzzwords like fail fast and fail forward. And uh, if you're not failing, um, you're not innovating enough. And what I really loved about that was it got us away from this embedded concept for decades that a failure indicates that you're a failure. And if you fail, the organization fails or if your project fails, you as the leader fail. And I just think that creates so much unnecessary baggage in terms of um, what it does to to people and organizations. And so what I really talk about is failure is okay. It's absolutely okay. In fact, um, you don't want to, you you want to basically accept the idea that not every idea and, and innovation is going to work when you quote unquote fail. Um, what the, 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 The response to that is to basically pause and say, what can I learn from this and how does it inform how I'm going to move forward? That's it. It's nothing more than that. We tried this. It didn't work. What can we learn from it? And how are we going to now apply that in our movement forward? Too often that failure thing um, and this concept of it being uh, now that person is a failure or that organization is a failure. You can't personalize it. It's Mm. Those things Mm -hmm. are true. Just because this failed doesn't mean the organization's a failure. It doesn't mean the individual's a failure. It just means we tried something and it didn't work. And uh, so if you can adopt that mindset, what happens is you free people up to really try and experiment and explore in all kinds of different ways because you've taken away this idea that failure is punitive or in any shape or form, and it gives people the freedom to uh, really try things without worrying about ramifications. And that's what you want. You want everyone in your organization to have the courage to try something new or put forth an idea and be willing to experiment um, knowing that if they fail, it's part of the process. What can we learn and we move on? And when you do that, you move, you remove boundaries and it really opens up uh, and creates a lot of freedom for everyone at every level of the organization to be really, really innovative. It's a super powerful um, posture if you can establish that failure in the organization is okay. That doesn't mean you, you know, you just jump into things without doing your research and and you don't take risk. You take calculated risks still, but just know that if it doesn't work, it's okay, and that you'll try something new. You'll learn from whatever that is, and you'll go a different direction. Does that make sense?
0: I love the word calculated risks. <laughs> that is one of my favorites. So yes, that makes a lot of sense.
2: So Jim, as we wrap things up, I just wondered, is there one final piece of advice or wisdom you'd share with our listeners to, to leave things with?
1: You know, I think uh, it goes to one of the earlier questions and really the first section of the book. I cannot talk about uh, how important this is enough. And it really is to find a path to do your inner work to to get to your place of of um, accepting yourself the way you are accepting your unique expression in the world so that whole place of self-worth and self-acceptance the reason that is so foundational is whether you're a leader or not that informs how you show up in the world and so the healthy the healthier relationship you have with yourself the more your light shines when you uh When you traverse this planet and so um, if you take nothing else away from this uh take away uh, the idea that you you can develop the courage and and whatever it takes the motivation to begin your own self-exploration and internal and external development of self because it will change your life and it will change how you show up uh, in the world and you'll have an incredible ripple effect um, and everyone around you. So that would be my my final piece of advice. Awesome, Jim. Thank you so much for coming on Big Universe. Thank you so much for having me. You guys are amazing and uh, I had a great time. So bless you and thank you both. And thanks for all the good work you're putting out into the world.
2: Check out Jim Blake's book, The Zen Executive, Gems of Wisdom for Enlightened Leadership. For more information about Unity, simply go to unity.org. For more information about Sarah Bowen and to order her new book, Sacred Sendoffs, and animal chaplain's advice for surviving animal loss, making life meaningful, and healing the planet, go to sacredsendoffs.com. To contact me, you can email me at jim at youthrivehere.com. Thanks, everybody. I'm Jim Lecher with Sarah Bowen. We'll talk with you next time on Big Universe.
0: Life is hard, and sometimes you need a little help and guidance. I'm Laura West, host of a Guided Life podcast and I believe that help is all around us. We just have to ask for it. The universe has a way of guiding us forward with the help of our past loved ones, angels, spirit guides, and ascended masters. On the podcast, I love to explore these ideas with incredible guests and let people know that they are never alone. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you can join me on this journey. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm network and wherever you get your podcasts.